Welcome to the Vertical Software Podcast. I'm your host, Sudan Siva, the head of corporate development of Vogue Software Group, where we buy and hold vertical market software companies across the world. In this podcast, we'll introduce you to owners and operators who run a vertical software business, talk about their story, how they view the market, and the trends that they see. Stay tuned for our next guest on the Vertical Software Podcast. All right. Hey, everyone. Really excited to have Scott Wolf on our podcast today. He is the CEO of Level Set, which is a company trying to or revolutionizing the construction payment space. They've raised over $47 million in capital and have, some, have made some really strong headways in the space. What stood out to me was actually Scott's story coming from a family of entrepreneurs and his evolution from, you know, working kind of, you know, in his own law firm, starting up his own software design firm, and then starting off Level Set, which to me is a remarkable transition and bringing Level Set to where it is today, where, you know, it is obviously a multi-million dollar company and tackling a very important problem, one that is probably something that is even more challenging in today's era where, you know, with COVID, with, you know, a a lot of economies, a lot of industries coming to a halt, I'd imagine becoming more of a challenge. So without further ado, Scott, would love to have you introduce yourself and go from there. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate y'all letting me come on and talk about level set, talk about all these cool things. You gave an intro to me and it asked me to intro me. But that's right. I'm the CEO of this company. I have this background in, in a little bit of law, a little bit of business, a little bit of software, created this cocktail of, I guess, skills and, and perspective, perspectives that I had. One of the things that always irritated me in um, when I was practicing construction law, um, when I, my family had uh, some construction work they did as well, is um, how, how challenging it was to, to deal with cash and to deal with getting paid. And, you know, getting paid is a really emotional thing. There's a lot of pride wrapped up in it. That's, um, it's, a, it's one, of the more, one of the most important moments that people have is when they get paid for the job well done. That's the fountainhead of the, the, the problem that we saw very early. And what really drives us today is putting power and empowerment in people's hands to always be able to get what they earn. That's what has um, helped us figure out how to guide this company and it led to some of the success we have today and one of the things that we're really proud of doing. Totally. I think, especially in the construction space, it's known for having a lot of challenges around payments. It's an industry that goes up and down, you know, a lot of contract work, not very stable. Mm-hmm. And so incredibly difficult problem. And, you know, yeah. we'd love to touch on that as we go through this podcast. To start off, I read your post on the lessons you learned growing up with entrepreneurs. I can speak from my own personal experience, having my dad, you know, being an entrepreneur himself in, in the insurance space. It, you know, it really shapes who you are as an individual. And I'm curious to learn how did your family shape the type of entrepreneur you ended up being and, you know, how that impacted your evolution? What did you like or dislike about family-run businesses? Some things that I like, very interesting about my background is since I grew up in a family business, I almost, I don't know if I really ever had a job 
I had like little jobs here and there, but I never really like thought about, oh, I need to get a job and go apply for a job and this whole experience. And interestingly, when you look at my family, not just my parents, but, but my grandparents, most of my aunts and uncles, they like don't have jobs. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I come from this background of no one getting jobs. And that is something that I really love about my background and what I think has been very valuable. Just a different, it's a completely different perspective. I know because my wife comes from a different background where her family is full of people with jobs. And it's just a different perspective with respect to like how you engage in commerce, how you provide, how you um, think about uh, making money, how you think about what you contribute. And even how your life and your work intermingle is different. I think that was a bit healthy of growing up around. Um, One of the things that I think is a gift that I have is um, I never felt like I didn't know how to make money. Not because I make money, like it's not that I make a lot of money. It's that I never felt this, like if you would have thrown me out into the street today, I I have this gift from my parents of just being entrepreneurial and knowing well, there's an opportunity, there's an opportunity and, and being courageous enough and like confident enough to, to jump, just, just start working on it. I didn't think that was um, a gift of perspective until I got older. I recognize it now as something that not, um, is not an instinct that a lot of people have. Um, whereas an instinct that just was given to me um, because of my experience. The downside is it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of downsides with, not knowing where your life and your work separate. There is something with family businesses that's different than the business that I have today. I think that there's pros, there's definitely a lot of pros and cons to to both sides of the equation there. Sometimes with all this venture capital and all the board and the the executives and the the shareholders, I look at my family's business and I think, oh, that's quaint. (laughs) Like we can make a lot of money like that. And is this about making money? Because if it's about making money, family businesses do a very good job of that. Whereas corporations, on the other hand, are a, a bit more complicated. There's a few different ways to look through that prism. And yeah. I definitely didn't get that. Like knowing how to build a corporation was something I did not get from family businesses, except maybe to yearn for it. I think I saw a lot of the, the warts of a family business and a lifestyle business that made me yearn and, and have a quest for understanding how to build a corporation. And now I'm on the other side and I can look, I can see those warts and <laughs> I can look, I can look back. One of the things that I am, I have three kids and I, I'm upset sometimes that, that they don't get to work on in the grocery store aisles. They don't get to like stock the shelves. They don't get to see the business living at the kitchen room, the kitchen table in the same way that I did. Family businesses, it, it, it put me directly in front of customers from a very early age. It put me um, directly in mar- every conversation from marketing to finance and cash flow and inventory. It's, and it's great for work ethic and for um, a lot of like wide perspective that in a corporate environment, it's very hard for me to bring that home. Even though I'm at, even though I touch all that with my job, it's very hard for me to bring that home in this type of business. And that's a bummer. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see both sides. And I think you do have a unique perspective where 
you've seen the ins and outs of a family-run business. You've seen the ins and outs of the corporation. Tell me more about some of the earliest experiments that you had, kind of like your initial forays into building your own business. Obviously, coming from a family where you know business was kind of first nature for a lot of you or a lot of your family. Um, tell me more about those initial experiments where you went from, you know, okay, I, I work at my family's grocery store. I learned X, Y, and Z skills. Now, how do I translate that into something different, something likely my own, but, you know, going after a different opportunity, like creating a law firm or a software yeah. development firm, which I believe you did back in high school. Yeah. Even like I sold turtles when I was in grammar school. That's uh, turtles around the neighborhood. Then I sold, then I had a lawn mowing company. I sold baseball cards. It, everything that I would do, I would collect baseball cards and then I would start like a baseball card company. I don't know why, I don't know why. I didn't collect turtles. I don't know if it was something with turtles, but then I started a turtle company. And when I was in high school, I started a website. It was mid 90s, early 90s when website design was very new. Um, and everybody needed websites to be designed. And it was something that I kind of like, at first I got into, I liked building pages. I built my own page. And then of course, like, what do you do? Well, I built a page for a band that I liked. And then I started a website company because right? that's, <laughs> that's just what you would do that evolved. I did that for quite a while, 10, 15 years. Um, that evolved because at first it was website design, but as technology improved it became more and more like web software and then when i got my law license the day i got my law license not a thought in my mind was thinking about like working for a firm i just i opened up my own firm that was a little bit of an accident because and this is another trick you learn in a family of entrepreneurs which the trick you learn is just how to um to find opportunity when i went to law school I didn't intend to go be an attorney. Actually, I intended to go like into my family's business. Um, they had grocery stores all over the, the New Orleans area. And I got my law license the year that Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And so what happened was all the, all the stores that we owned, they all got flooded. And now we were, there was no grocery business. Um, the neighborhoods were, were, were gone. The stores were underwater. So Instead, um, my parents pivoted a bit and they took, um, they had a contractor's license. They did some development with their own properties. They pivoted that to a restoration company because there was a ton of restoration work in New Orleans. And then I was working a little bit with that. I built a software product for them to, to run that restoration company. And then out of the other hand, I spun up a law firm that focused on construction law because there was construction. I, I had no other, there was no reason to do that. Um, I would have right. never have done that beforehand. Um, and then that became like the, that became the seed for something that will be, I guess, the story of my career around construction. And so it's, it's interesting where passions come from and where like where opportunity comes from and what do you think, what is your calling, so to speak? And when you are an entrepreneur, I think that stuff, it gets nurtured in a funny way. It's kind of like, it's like I, I was going to use a, a COVID analogy of everybody making sourdough bread and they get, what is that, sourdough starter or something? It's like a starter. Yeah. A little, yeah. And then you can make bread forever with it. You know, when you wind through why my career is what it is, 
what I eventually became interested in and how it all, it comes from this, this weird, I think, entrepreneurial mindset that I just happened to grow up in. It's, it allows you to kind of take the twists and turns to keep inching towards whatever it is I'm inching towards. Totally. And, and, you know, remarkable story going from starting your own law firm or even studying law, thinking that you're going to go into a grocery business, getting hit by a hurricane, <laughs> getting into the restoration right. business. And then out of that, you know, with the unique skills of, you know, understanding the construction space, understanding law, and also having a software background, building software, building apps, websites to then jump into now level set. So we'd love to hear the story around level set. Like where, where did you take it from there? Kind of from the initial inception of these three different, very different things, uh, things that kind of occurred in your life. Yeah. So when the early, my early law days, I would have contra- contractors would be coming to my office. Um, somehow they find me. I did a lot of blogging early. I was one of the early lawyer bloggers. That was a cut and edge thing to do. As a matter of fact, um, it was so cut and edge, it was illegal. And I had the, um, one of the things I did early in my career, my first year of being a lawyer or first two years or whatever, is I sued the Bar Association to let me blog <laughs> and won that. So the, the contractors would find my, me because I would write about how, you know, how hard it is to get paid, yada, yada, yada. And then somebody would come, this is early, people would come and they would ask me like one of the things that they needed when, they, when you're unpaid as a contractor, you, you file a lien. And I remember one of the first times somebody asked me to file a lien, not knowing what to do. Because by the way, if you're, you get out of law school, you don't know how to practice law. You don't know how to file things in court. You don't know how to do anything. So I knew what a lien was, but I actually had to search online how to file a lien. And I was looking for like legal zoom for this or something, because I, I thought somebody, somebody has to have a way to do this easily. And that I think is like the seed where you had some things going on. You had TurboTax was getting, was just starting to get popular. LegalZoom was just starting to kind of come of its own. And I, I saw this type of, um, this type of technology to assist people and give access to people to do complicated processes. Um, I saw it as um, an opportunity. And that was the genesis there is like I had, I, I was trying to learn how to do this. I was looking for an easier way. Um, and I saw the contractors would come to me and, you know, they, 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 it's a very intimidating thing to go hire an attorney. If you're owed $3,000 for a construction job or even like $10,000 to go hire an attorney, you got to write a check for a retainer. You have to find an attorney. You have to talk to an attorney. If you just need a lien filed, there's really not great access to go get that done. That spun up a widget that was kind of like a TurboTax legal zoom light to do this one task. And it did well. And I'd run some Google AdWords to it. I'd, I'd like blog around it. It did fairly well. And then what I discovered over time is, you know, why are people having these payment problems to begin with? I sort of like, it's always, if I'm trying to help this contractor get paid by, by, by introducing this, like this little WYSIWYG that helps them avoid an attorney. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm helping them get paid without, without having to go with that extra step. But why are they running into this problem to begin with? Why do they even need this thing? Um, and that just kept leading me further and further down this 
this very intricate rabbit hole around construction payment, which you touched on it at the start. It's, it's very, very messy. It's subject to a lot of different um, regulations. And it started to blossom a bit like a, like a flower as to why the world is the way it is. And what are the, what are the, the barriers to contractors and people in this industry? I mentioned the lean as kind of the seed. It's a technical thing, the lean. A lot of people in the industry have heard of it. But if you, if you research it, the lean was invented um, by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. They are the people who originally created the mechanics lean concept. And it is credited as being the first labor law in the United States and in the world. First time we, we, we created a law that said people have to be paid. And today, as you know, there's lots of labor laws. And I think that's what it boils down to with some of the problems that construction payment has, which is that it's a really complicated labor law between independent contractors. That makes compliance, it makes the balance of powers complicated, and it's, it, it ultimately, because of that balance and power issue and the compliance issue and all the, the mess, it slows down payment substantially. And so we have a really big slow payment problem in construction, which, which creates a huge cash problem, which creates a performance problem. This vicious cycle is, um, it, it, you know, the seeds of it is always looking at it from like, oh, well, here's where it is. Here's the point when, it, when the kettle is screaming, which is this contractor who needs to follow lean. And if you just start unwinding it, um, you start to see what all the problems are. And that's, that's kind of the genesis to where we are today, the level set concept, and even you know looking at the the level set name, which is we're gonna, we're looking to level set this this industry around this thorny thorny um, challenge. Amazing, and you know several thousand contractors later, here you are. You know we'd love to hear kind of what has that journey been like since going through that problem. I think you mentioned a couple of interesting things, you know, payments, compliance is obviously the concept of the liens, which is from what I understand, at least a, a lot of where the initial product was built off of, but you certainly branched into a number of different spaces. And I'd imagine that will only accelerate over time. Tell me more about where do you see level set headed? One of the things I, I frequently say is um, no one, walks onto a construction job and says, I can't wait to lean this job. No one walks into a construction job and says, boy, we're going to slow pay these subcontractors like they've never seen before. You know, like no one does that. Everyone, for the most part, walks on jobs and they have good intentions and they want to, um, they want good outcomes. They want good relationships. They want money to move fast. Um, but for some reason, well, for many reasons, the state, the status quo and the, the state of affairs, it manufactures and it, it's like an assembly line of creating all the things that these people don't want. <laughs> and, you know, when, when you think about what that means, what it means is there's trillions of dollars every year caught up in a system that nobody likes. 
<laughs> and that nobody's benefiting from. And when you, when you, sometimes you might think that somebody has benefited from it, like, oh, the general contractor's benefiting from the float, but that's not actually happening, or the lender's benefiting, but that's not actually happening because the lender is paying people to go chase down all the risk they have on a project. And the general contractor isn't really floating. They're doing the same. They're, they're still living hand to mouth with. So no one's benefiting from this. And if you went to all of them and you said, hey, how about this? How about you give me 5% and I'll take care of all of this? They would, like, you would get the 5% right away. So that is an interesting opportunity where you have trillions and trillions of dollars stuck in a system that no one likes and that no one's benefiting from. And there's, there's some complications with it. We, you know, when we think about where level set's going, I'll go back to the very beginning, which is where it comes from. Um, and this urge that we have to empower people to always get what they earn. Um, this vision that we have of making it so that no one in construction loses a night's sleep over payment. Um, that might be somebody who's like, losing night's sleep because they have to keep track of the money and they have to keep track of the risk or somebody who's like on, on the edge of not being able to, to access the cash that they need. But there's a, the, the future and where we see it going is to continue making progress on that to where, you know, at the end of the day, everybody who does work on a job, they deserve to be paid. They should be paid and they should be paid quickly, not in 90 days. Like that's ridiculous. It should be like, why not, why not like in a week? Why not in a day? There's a lot of barriers between where we are today, 90 days and chaos. And this, this beautiful vision of, you know, people doing work and then getting paid the moment they do the work or the moment they supply the materials. There's a ton of barriers. And what we're doing at Level Set and where we see it going is just to keep, you know, to, we're, we're like the track runner and we're running over a hurdle and then we, we keep going over hurdles. Our users get paid faster. That happens. Um, and when we think about what we're obsessed about at Level Set, we're obsessed at looking at that and saying, okay, well, how do we get it faster? And right. we're always working on getting our contractors and getting um, people in the industry paid faster. And I don't think we're going to run out of I don't think we're going to run out of space there. <laughs> I think we have a, <laughs> a long race. And when we get to the end, you know, there'll be there. I don't know if there is an end, but if we get to the end, then maybe we'll look at I don't know bidding or something. <laughs> something, under, something, under, something easier yeah i can imagine i mean you know obviously a very fragmented place incredibly complex like you said a lot of regulations across different states countries provinces and, and you know that only adds to the opportunity as well you know when we think about like you know for example let's fast forward to 2040 what would the tech stack of a contractor look like? These are the kind of conversations that get played back and everybody sounds like they were crazy. Like no one's ever yeah. right about this. So that's the, that's the disclaimer is that no one, like zero people are right about this. And I actually just read a book, Anti-Fragile, which is by the guy who wrote The Black Swan. And that's kind of his whole thesis, which is that everybody makes these predictions and it turns out that everything, that the future is wildly different than you, than you thought um, because of, because of just randomness. So I'm not really a futurist that much. I'm kind of the opposite where I think of the practical challenges that people have and the, what, what 2040 looks like is not only hard to predict, but it's hard to make it relevant to what the challenges are today. 
There are versions of 2040 where things are so technologically handled, so to speak. There's people who are working on things where um, you can you can read a building and know how much of a building's how much work on a building has been done. Um, you can see people how many people are on the job. You can you can keep track of people's hours and materials and the and the completion of a job automatically. In which case, the future of construction in that setting would be um, a lot of um, what they call that, like to, to be able to figure out who's on the job. So a part of it is this this reality, virtual reality sort of thing where you're able to to monitor everything. There's a there's an AI component with respect to how that you can you can predict everything. And then there's the whole the whole lane of like the Katera type of models that you're just going to go manufacture everything. Construction is going to be kind of like an assembly line. One of the things that's tricky about construction is that there there's so much involved in construction like like the assembly line concept works for some type of construction but i live in new orleans and they're never going to assembly line the guy or a girl who comes out and fix the crown molding at at this 150 year old house um that's never going to be assembly lined you know there's a whole spectrum of things on on federal jobs and state jobs it's so hard to say that it's going to go a certain way but certainly there's going to be a lot more construction that's assembled especially in places that um, are open fields, so to speak, that just need sure. housing or office buildings. You're going to have a lot more of um, the ability to keep track of, um, there's going to be, a, whatever that word is, not, not virtual reality. It's some kind of augmented reality or something like that where you're able to keep track of the stuff that's on, that's on site. So I think sure. there'll be a different, there'll be a, an interesting way from a tech stack, that's not even tech, that's just a that's process of, of, of assembly. Um, tech, it could be a lot of, of being able to capture the-, the Sure, the, sounds uh, more like an IoT solution. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of- able to. Yeah, a lot of IoT connected to, yeah. connected to, your, um, to your site and possibly yeah. less fragmentation in the industry. But that would be interesting if that's the case because Less fragmentation makes the solution a lot easier to, to make it to make it all yeah. combined. The more fragmentation, the so, you can give me a hundred years, but if it's super fragmented, it's so hard to get everybody in the same place. But one of the interesting things about construction in the past forty or fifty years is it's gotten really fragmented because of technology. When you look at how many layers there are on a construction project, there's a ton of layers. Well, that's because a hundred years ago it was like you had one builder and that builder built the place. Now right. you have every nuance of the building has its own trade. And so right. because of the proliferation of, of, of technology, elevators and electricity and e efficiency improvements, everything has a specialty. So the technology has actually spawned off a ton of specialties and that has made projects more fragmented. I wonder if it will suck back in where now because of technology, you're able to kind of you're able to consolidate and i'm not so sure because the, the, the alternative is that the technology just continue to spawn off more specialties it's really right. hard to have diversity of choice and standardization a lot of different scenarios and it's gonna have level set, equally though. yeah it's gonna def definitely yeah. level set it's gonna run everything 100 <laughs> percent switching gears a bit would love to learn more about your leadership style obviously I feel like you probably have this 
interesting blend of everything that you've learned as an individual, but everything that you know, you've learned from your family as well. And I'm curious to go deeper into this. And so, you know, my first question is, you know, what skill or mindset do you find most difficult to transfer to your team members? You come from a family or, you know, you come from a tradition of family owned businesses going into the corporation where you're interacting with people who likely don't have that same background. Curious to learn what's the most difficult skill to transfer. One of the things that I have as an entrepreneur is a lot of diversity with, uh, and it's coming from a family business, a lot of diversity of, um, of knowledge, you know, having to deal with customer experience at a, in a retail setting, dealing with marketing, the family business, like you get, you get a lot of, and I didn't, my family business was pretty good. It was a pretty good sized business. It, it grew from a very small business to one that was regional and was pretty professional. And so you, you're dealing with the, like, marketing and with customer service and um, all the different crafts and I learned them all and as a result I can see how they are connected and I've learned them I've, I've learned more as well along the over the years when people especially now that we're growing I find people come into the business and they have a narrow experience in a certain like type of in a certain field that's one of the things that uh, is a skill that it, like, it's like you don't have Renaissance people too often in the corporate world. I actually think that there's a book out called range. I haven't read it, but it, um, it, I know what it's about and it, it connects to a lot of books that I have read such as mastery and Le- this book on Leonardo da Vinci. And basically if you study any of these masters, like these, these masters, you, what you learn is that they are able to connect the dots across many different fields and functions and things and ideas. And I don't always see that kind of like that knowledge in the corporate world. Um, but as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, you, you kind of have to get that knowledge to a certain degree. Right. You have to spread across everything. That is, I guess, maybe a skill. The mindset, my, bit, my family's business was very um, action oriented. And as an article that I wrote and I said, they didn't even like the the word strategy, my my family's business, the first one, the grocery one grew to like 50, 60, $70 million or something, annual revenue and hundreds of employees. Then they, they pivoted after that got flooded and started a construction company. I think that had 200 or 300 employees at some point. They never said the word strategy in my life. Um, The word strategy is a word that they might not even know how to spell. That's a little bit, that's a little extreme. They know how to spell it, but <laughs> that is way different. You, I can't tell you how many times I hear the word strategy. I hear the word strategy from frontline workers who are at the company and, 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 it, and it boggles my mind that how wrapped up people are in strategy where they don't even understand what it is. And that is a huge difference that I find that I don't think that small business owners sit down ever. And, and, and medium business owners and, and lifestyle businesses really ever think about strategy, yet they build nice sized businesses and sometimes quite big businesses. And there's a role for strategy. I think about it. I, I'm a student of it. I, I give it its space. But that mindset is so easy that I find the mindset of people who work with us, they very commonly will jump, will, will like, they'll, they'll turn a, an action conversation into a strategy conversation. It's a different mindset to just kind of do and right. like action 
is the term I think I use is action each strategy for breakfast, which is that a play on the culture each strategy for breakfast, which is almost the same thing, a culture of action each strategy yeah. for breakfast. That's a mindset that I that you know you talk to investors, you talk to acquirers, you talk to boards, you talk to anybody. They're all like strategy, strategy. I understand strategy. I do strategy, so to speak, but I don't get it, man. <laughs> well, I think you touched on a great point there. I think strategy is very different from what I think you're trying to get at, which to me sounds like company building, right? You're essentially taking all these actions, using a first principles mindset and going deeper than the average person or essentially most people would to ask the questions that, you know, are seemingly in plain sight, but never get asked and therefore never get, you know, investigated and therefore you never see a solution around it, right? For yeah. example, leans to go from con contractors and the problems that they see all the way to the specific nuance of creating a lean, right? If you think about the series of questions that you ask and you had to explore the conversations you had to have to get to that point, I think that's the type of mindset that if you were to apply to any business problem, not just kind of the original business problem, if you will. I think that's where you see, you know, the missing skill. And I agree with you. I think it's a skill that, you know, needs to get built at an early age and, you know, really foster, right? You know, some sometimes, you know, you're fortunate to have it through a family-run business. Sometimes you kind of figure it out through survival. But I think, you know, that mindset is definitely critical and uh, something necessary to build something like Level Set. And there's a great, um, when I, there's, I think it's Michael Porter or maybe Clayton Christensen, one of them, when they talk about strategy, maybe both of them, they talk about the activities um, that a business kind of like accumulates. A business accumulates all these different activities that it does. And when you put all of those together, it, um, it creates something that's very hard for another business to replicate. Level set is a very difficult business to replicate, just like any business, because we've made so many little choices and we have so much activity and ways we do things that fit this problem that we solve. Our strategy has, has kind of been born of that almost more than it's been to like, we didn't, I never sat out at the beginning and said, here's the, here's the strategy document. Let's go build all these activities. We sort of built the activities in response to the, in response to the market need in response to the customer. And through those activities, we, we, we discovered the strategy almost like an archeologist. Maybe we made mistakes. So maybe, maybe if I would have just sat down and came up with the strategy, I would have done it better. I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a great point to, leave things off that I think, you know, given the environment, things are tough, right? With COVID, with everything going on, I think the future is just as unpredictable as the present right now. Um, with that said, I think the mindset that you've applied to bring level set up until this point, I think will definitely serve it, you know, serve, serve yourself and the company well in the future as well. So, you know, really excited to see uh, where you take level set and obviously really enjoyed this conversation as well. I think we touched on a lot of different topics, probably not everything that was planned, but you know, certainly a lot of great conversation and uh, definitely enjoyed it. So great to have you on. Yeah. Thanks for awesome. having me. It's fun. Appreciate it.
You've been listening to the Vertical Software Podcast. Make sure to rate and subscribe our show to stay up to date on future episodes of the Vertical Software Podcast. Thanks again and talk to you next week.